I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. Welcome to The Outer Sanctum for another edition of The Fifth Quarter. My name is Kate Sear and this week my Sanctum sister Nicole Hayes and I are delighted to be joined by the one and only Kurt Fernley. Kurt is one of those rare people who needs almost no introduction but I'm going to try and give him one anyway. From his humble beginnings in the tiny remote New South Wales town of Carcor, with its population of just 200 people, Kurt has taken the sporting world by storm over the last two decades. He's a three-time Paralympic gold medalist, a Commonwealth gold medalist. He's won more marathons than I can count all over the world. He's crawled the Kokoda track for charity and been part of the winning crew of the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. He's been the patron for the International Day of People with Disability, a prominent advocate for the rights of people living with disabilities and was recognised for this work with an Order of Australia. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you, Kurt, to the Outer Sanctum. It's an honour to be here. I've been waiting for my call for the last five years. (laughs) (laughs) How great. I I did actually say that I wasn't going to say this on air, but bit of a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's a great honour to have you, Kurt, and thanks. That's so kind of you. Um, I know you've been super busy lately. You've spent the last couple of weeks on our TV screens and in our ears with your podcast covering all the action of the Tokyo Paralympics. Now, this is, I think, the first Paralympics since 1996 that you didn't compete in yourself. So I'm wondering what it felt like to be on the other side watching all of that action unfold. Um, great. I finished my racing with nothing left. It felt like I got to the point where I had nothing left to give or or I had already taken too much. And I had a a family that I had my my young fella's seven, my little girl's, she's three. uh, and, And there were so many things that I enjoyed more than racing. And as soon as that happened, I just knew that it was but it was time. In Rio, he was in the last 200 metres and my wife and kids were at the finish line. That's just Harry at that point. And I was leading with one other athlete for 42 Ks. We broke away early and then he went to pass me with 200 metres to go and for the first time in my, my head, everything just said that you don't need it. You, you just don't need this anymore. And I did hold on and I, I competed for two more years uh, I, I got to go out in the Commonwealth Games in front of all my family, but seeing it, I, I wasn't sure how I would respond, but it was just gratitude of, you know, the years that I got to be there and also really impressed because Danny DeToro, who is the, the she's the co-captain both this, this Paralympics, but also the last Paralympics, and, and two years before Rio, we worked really hard on culture and tried to communicate with everyone 
because we were kind of conduits. We competed with the old guard, you know, like both me and Denny had either trained with or got advice from Uncle Kevin Coons, who's our first Paralympian, but we were also in a team with our with our newest Paralympian. So we were able to talk about the culture and and in these games in particular, I got to see the success of that. I got to see a 15-year-old talking about it. I got to hear, you know, the superstars, you know, Ellie Cole speak about the mob and the connection with the past and talk about the 1,044 Paralympians that are with her. Like being able to step back and see the success of our movement and we haven't always been like that. We didn't know our past particularly well unless... You had that relationship. Seeing that also, it gave me, I think that probably gave me added layers of culture of, of closure to know I'm done, they're great, and that's it. That really brings up this issue of the Paralympics family, which you've talked about in the past. It's just fascinating to see how you can be so competitive, which is obviously what world-class athletics is about, but still maintain this idea of family and togetherness. Can you explain that for us? My biggest competitor, I'd say if it was different people in different points of time, but say David Weir, an English athlete, we would race together since I was 15 and he was 17. And we had years where I would win the majority and years where he would win the majority. And we would be ruthless with each other, but we would cross every race, high five. Uh, even the very last time that we raced in the Paralympics, I remember I was into him for 40 kilometres, just into him, trying to switch the tactics and, and trying to get a little bit of an advantage over a specific part of the course. It didn't work. He beat me. <laughs> but he turned around, though, and, and said, I love you, brother. I love racing you. I love you, brother. And by far, I have more in common with that bloke than 90% of the world. We both were given opportunities for sport. We both hit the same barriers in sport. We're both, at the end of the day, two people with disabilities finding dealing with the complications of that. And that's what the Paralympics is. The Paralympics are a group of people who have a common goal. One, the goal is that we challenge misconceptions around disability all around the world. But we also, even though to varying degrees, we also have common uh, uh, barriers. And that is the theme. And that is the connector between us all. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're in the green and gold or you're my fiercest competitor in another colour, uh, in another country. I want that person's life to be better. And I think the Paralympics can do that. And we're on the same team. That's yeah, that's very powerful stuff. But, you know, on top of that, while all of this was going on, while you're commentating for the Paralympics and, you know, obviously very invested in that, you're also part of the rescue of 50 athletes and their families from Afghanistan. Can you explain the role you played in that? You know what? I don't even know how to speak about that. Yeah, I, I haven't really spoken about it. I don't, I, it, and it's it's just purely that I, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I was actually in hotel quarantine when it all took place. That was before, and already you're pretty emotional in that space. And just by chance, Craig Foster calls me, and I'd already tweeted about the two kids. I'd say they're kids; they're in their early twenties. Two Paralympians in Kabul who's unable to get out. I'd already tweeted about how hard it was to see and then it's like 10 minutes later I'm in a I'm in a WhatsApp thread with them. They're in a back room of a extended family members in Kabul and then it was just 
you know, it was a probably a three or four day just uh, just roller coaster ride. I don't even know. I don't like it's it's so weird to even think back on that. It it was just a group of Australians who just worked their ass off to get these two and uh, a coach, and and there were more people working with the soccer uh, with the soccer players as well, because my sole focus was at that point in time to kids with disabilities who. I know through my experience, if you have a disability in a hard place, you disappear quickly. You know, I've crawled into refugee camps. I've crawled into slums. I've crawled past disability and then I've tried to find them a week later and they're gone. In my experience, disability in the developing world, disability in conflict zones, you, you see them, but if you take your eyes off them for a second, because their entire life in challenging situations, the entire life is being small. It's making yourself small so that you're not a target, so that you're not seen. So when it comes to these moments, I've crawled past this person with a disability previously and then did everything to try and find them and you just never do. So there was an immediate sense of, what can happen now before they're gone? And there was, uh, you know, Craig Foster's had a team of Human Rights for All and Sally Stegall and Nikki Dryden and Alison um, uh, Batterson and this also stretching out into the UK and, and Switzerland and everyone just, they, I've never seen any people do what those guys did. It, it was calling up any person you knew in defence was calling up any person you knew in politics. It was trying to get, for my part, I had my Twitter thread that was my Paralympians and part of me just wanted to be be there because I wanted them to know that they were my one through a hundred. Like if you're a if you're a person with a disability, you want somebody in that conversation who has a disability, who gets it, that you're not going to be a hundred. You're one. So it was me and Nikki and Ariane, their um, chef de mission of the Afghan Paralympic team who was in London, that, and then those two were just on this Twitter thread and it went for three days and everything that could be done was um, was being done. And event, incredibly quickly they got humanitarian visas. The, the, the government was amazing. Um, Maurice Payne and um, Richard Colbeck and... No doubt many, many more, and also DFAT, and they, they were so great because they were working under such chaotic conditions trying to get so many people with Australian connections out of that place, and thankfully our two guys got on that list. And then when it happened, I didn't want to talk about it because it's their story. It's not my story. And they were cautious because, again, even talking about it now, they're got, their mums and dads, uh, you know, like we don't understand. There's so much going on that... When you do say something, it becomes about you. But it's not about me. It's not about any of us. It's about them. And you want them to be able to have the space but also know that they have the option of your help. But they need that time and space and support that people from afar can't give to rebuild their life. And their life isn't just Paralympics. It's unbelievable that they got there and they competed. It's unbelievable. Seeing them walk out the closing ceremony, But I think that, yeah, you just don't know. Yeah, 
But for someone who didn't know what to say, I've spoken about it for the last 10 minutes. But <laughs> it's just, um, in, even in my brain, I just don't know. I can't process it. You're literally he- he- seeing this message asking for help and seeing Nikki Dryden tell them, you must get through that checkpoint. You must. And then you're talking from someone from defence who says they've got to get to this gate. And then you, you know, then you're calling and they need to get to that. But that's the opposite gate that they're at, and they have to go past Taliban. And it's like you have to go past this checkpoint. And yeah, I don't. It's intense. But how great that these two kids now are safe and have options and are no longer sitting in a back room, scared. You know, no doubt they're still scared because who knows what's in front of them. But yeah, at least at least they're they're out of that immediate danger. You know, and if you talk about it, also you're going to get praise for it. Praise, I don't feel particularly comfortable with. They were the ones that were ducking Taliban. You know, like they were the ones that were leaving a somewhat safe little room to fight through a gate at the airport. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Darcy Vessio, and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum Podcast. I want to change tack a little bit if I can and, and talk Please. about somebody that, uh, <laughs> somebody that was very special to you and I know that you admired very much, and that's the late comedian and disability rights activist Stella Young. Many years ago, she did a famous TED Talk talking about what she called inspiration porn, which is this idea that people with disability are brave or inspiring or exceptional or admirable just by virtue of their mere existence. And I wonder when it comes to media coverage of people with disabilities in events like the Paralympics or more broadly and to covering the exceptional achievements of people who are living with disabilities, there's always a trap that we might fall into the the kind of problem that Stella identified. And I wonder if you think the media is getting the balance right. Uh, they are because there's more disabled people telling those stories. Um, half of the coverage of the Paralympics were people with disabilities. Um, not, not many people know this, but me and Stella actually had a podcast together that after she went to London and she, she always used to talk about us sporty types. Not sure about you sporty types. <laughs> and then she came to London and she left saying, well, you guys are quite, uh, what did she say? You're a thoughtful bunch, actually, aren't you? (laughs) So we came home and we started a podcast and we got about eight episodes in and she actually um, passed away the night before we were going to finish it. So it's sitting in an ABC studio somewhere that I just didn't want to continue it. But it is getting better because it's not being co-opted as much. That, that people with disabilities are actually a part of the medium that's that's giving it to community. And I think that helps. And, and like over the entire coverage, I would have praised our guys, I hope, constantly, but in the right way and not in the, wow, look at these special humans doing stuff, but 
look at that hard ass who just jumped one meter eighty eight with one leg. What a weapon! Look at Madison De Rosario push a marathon and win it by two meters. She is incredible. No talk of ah, oh, in spite of X or overcome Y. No mention of that. What a weapon! What she just did allowed that act to live on its own and respect it. Yeah, I think that we need to make sure that we stay on top of that because, uh, you know, you just never know. You, you never know what could happen in a year or two. But at the moment, I think we're making a lot of gains purely because of the recognition that you need people within the story to be invited to tell the story. And that's what we're doing. Unpacking that a little bit more, our colleague at the Outer Sanctum, Shelley Ware, has talked about the frustration of seeing that the token Aboriginal person rolled out at Indigenous celebrations only to disappear for the rest of the year. Is there any concern that that can happen sort of in the wake of that pro- that profile disappears? There's always a concern that momentum will stop and I think that's with all sports and all minorities, you know, because you come from a space where you were invisible to a space where all of a sudden you are visible and how quickly will it take or you know how how, you don't know how quickly it could turn and disability is still like you look at disability is still copping the knocks that you Kyle Sandlands a few days ago said Paralympians were throwing sausage with like there were sausages thrown on the ground you know like and how you know and he's got millions of people who sat there and giggled so yeah we've still got we've still got a lot to do, but I like there is there is so many talented, amazing people who are finishing their journey in the Paralympics who will not disappear. Dylan Alcott's not going anywhere, you know. Uh, and, um, Ellie Coles, she she will not. We demand that she not leave the leave the stage. Riley Bat, he may call it quits, you know, but he will continue to tell the story. And if we've done it right, me, Dylan, we will we will be overshadowed quickly and a new group will be bigger and better and stronger and continue the fight. So I don't I don't feel cautious. I feel optimistic about where Paralympics is and where it's going. You talked just now, Kurt, about horrible discourse that we heard from Kyle Sanderlands in the last few days. And I want to ask you another question about discourse and, and it links to COVID. So in recent Weeks, of course, we've seen a number of people have sadly passed away from the virus and we sometimes hear politicians say that all oh, those people had underlying health conditions. And I imagine that a lot of Paralympians and a lot of your friends would be people with underlying health conditions. 40% of Australians have underlying health conditions. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that rhetoric and how you feel when you hear that rhetoric and what it, what message it sends, if any. Yeah, I'm not sure. Even the discourse from state to state, it's, you know, but hey, premiers, you know each other's mobile numbers. You know the prime minister's mobile number. Sort your shit out before you come on telly. The last thing we need is more agitation between each other. We're a country, granted, where we've got, we've got some assholes in every single state and corner. It's <laughs> just sorted out before you go talking. Uh, with the vulnerability that there are a lot of complicating health conditions around disability. You don't have to be vulnerable because you have a disability, but it is more likely that you have complicated health history. Uh, the only thing that I I constantly think about that is we need to do everything to make sure that population are vaccinated. 
you know, we're we're talk, we're seeing a decline in vaccination rate in general, but this whispers about only half of the NDIS people have had their first jab, jab. and that's only ten percent of people with disabilities. You know, if we don't get that up, the, the, the people who are dying of COVID, that's a lot of that is people with disabilities. So I don't understand. We talk about one to one hundred. It should be getting getting people with disabilities vaccinated in this country should be the one through to one hundred. They're in the one A. Like we need to get that group vaccinated, and how we're not at eighty percent already in that group blows me away. Could could there be structural barriers, Kurt? Do you think to people with disabilities being able to get to places? That, I mean, yeah, but also people with disabilities are shit scared going to hospitals. I've I've been in the hospital. I spent so much time in hospitals as a kid. I I'm probably the one the one percent who is the least amount of engaging in the hospital setting. But I'm shit scared to go to hospitals. It's you know when you drag to these places, you're constantly kind of pop rotted and pricked and pushed. And you know, ten fifteen years ago, it was not a great experience. So there's also that to get through. Like I know kids that are in the bush. They cry from the minute they leave home till they drive them over the Blue Mountains into Sydney or down into the city because they know that they're going to be treated like they're sick or because they know that there's just stuff that's going to happen. So there will also be like the the internal conflict there. But you know, if we don't in, if we don't vaccinate those that are potentially going to pay the highest price, it's it's also Indigenous Australia. Like they're, they're, they're two big red flashing lights that you just hope <laughs> you just. Well, both hope and you're baffled why it's not sorted because the light won't go out on its own. I, I wish I could be more succinct for you and I wish I could say here's the way it is, but I, could, I just see it as a bit of a holy shit, please somebody be sorting this out. I, I can't sort it, you, you, you can't, but I, I hope someone is and I, I don't feel like it is getting sorted yet. It does feel like there is a lot <laughs> that needs to be done to even just sort of start to redress the disadvantage. So this is probably a fairly big sweeping concept to get your head around. But what does equality look like for people with a disability? Can you have you got an idea of when you might know we get we've got there? Is there a key thing that would be a measure for you? That's the hard thing about disability is it's never going to be solved because we're going to understand variations on on that disability, we're going to, you're also going to be changed with your ideas of how disability can interact with community. The idea of voice technology given to those who are nonverbal, who are now able to communicate freer than ever before. Or, you know, so you've got also the story of technology that's going along the side, but we're also going to understand more about Asperger's and autism. We're going to understand those so when I look back on my life, in 1985, I was meant to be segregated and isolated in, edu- in education and even institutionalised. I mean, we shake our head that that took place in 85. We'll be shaking our head about 2021, you know. So in 10 more years, everything that we thought we knew about disability, if we do our job right, will be redundant and we will have more challenges. So there will be, that's the hard thing, that there's no win. We can't say... If we get to X, we're good because if we've done it right, X will have been stretched. But in my conversations, it's all about allowing a person to be fully included within community, however that looks and however that individual is able to engage. That may be hopefully being employed, being able to volunteer, 
feeling the value of being equal to the, everyone else in community uh, as they are, not as we'd like them, but as they are. Like uh, that's what you're after, but there's no forever of what that will look like because it'll change. Kurt, talking about being included, I wonder if we can go right back to your childhood, which you just mentioned in uh, Carcor. And I've read your fantastic autobiography, which is called Pushing the Limits. And I was absolutely struck by how many people in your local community uh, rallied around you and gave you support right throughout your life to, to get to where you are today and how essential the support of other people was to your success. There are so many beautiful stories in your book, but I wonder if I can ask you to tell our listeners about your teacher, Dicko, as you call her, <laughs> Mrs. Dixon, and the impact that she had on you in particular. The book was it was written with Warwick Green, which is I just needed to throw that out. Although it, my mum and dad are convinced that it's written in my my words and my handwriting, but we <laughs> did work together to write this, and he's a, a talented writer and a, a good mate now. A community or everything for around disability. A disability isn't a, it isn't a siloed thing. Community define it. Community still define my disability. They define it not only to me, they define it to my kids, they define it to the school. You you have a degree of stretching your disability and, and finding out, uh, you know, how it works and finding shortcuts and adapting, but community get to define it, you know, whether or not they let me in a building, whether or not they allow me onto the plane, whether or not I get kicked out because I'm a firehouse. You know, like that's all the constant defining of, of who I am by community. Dicko defined me equally with every other kid. She had to work a shitload harder for it. She, you know, found wheelchair basketball chairs. She brought out guys to teach wheelchair basketball. Changed my life. Uh, at a period of time where everyone was getting bigger and quicker and finding football and finding their, their kind of st- bit of power to define themselves lots of the time from the bush through sport, I was able to find my space to define myself. Well, she found it. She taught me, brought the school, the, the wheelchairs out, put everyone in wheelchairs, uh, gave me an even playing field, let me figure out that I was great at something, and then she would spend another two years trying to find alternative sports just every lunchtime. She found a racing wheelchair. Uh, she found my coach who would then coach me for the next 25 years. Uh, she would sit on the oval teaching me how to throw javelin. She made sure that she was going to do anything within her power to give me something that I could be great at. Everyone deserves to find something they're great at because it's that, that's just a part of life and it becomes a part of who you are, that confidence attached to that. But sometimes kids with disabilities, they don't get that through sport especially. Like if anything... Sport can be an enhancer of the opposite of that. You know, when you pick glass every time, when you're sitting on the side of a field while everyone else is having a ball, when you scoot to the library when the team sports are in. So there's, yeah, for me, I'm really grateful for for that interaction with Dicko and many, many, many other people who just through society and through sport gave me options and gave me power in my life. 
You talk a lot about things that other people have done for you, and and but also you are leading by that example. I would, we'd love to hear a little bit about um, the campaign We the Fifteen. It's a uh, campaign that's orchestrated from the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee, Special Olympics, um, uh, and another international sporting body uh, for people with disabilities. But United Nations have agreed upon a percentage of people that have disability and they've agreed upon 15%. It is 15% because countries like Australia and many, many others, they will classify around 20% of people as lived experience with disabilities, but there are other countries that say there is none. (laughs) You know, there are other countries that say disability is 8% or 5% or for multiple multiple reasons now and historically. Uh, it's about bringing out a common voice to, 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 to say that we want to be in the rooms that you are, that we want employment, we want education, we want value to be given to people with disabilities. Every country takes their own unique journey around disability and there are many ways that we just, in Australia, we live amazing opportunities. There are also still challenges, but there are other countries that don't have the structure to allow people with disabilities to live, the expectation. They don't have human, you know, people fighting for disability in a human rights lens like we do. You know, they don't have politicians who are who are people with disabilities to fight for those issues like we do. Um, they don't have safety nets like the NDIS. They, you know, two-thirds of the world who require a wheelchair don't have one. We'll never see one. Not... two-thirds. So campaigns like this or, you know, everyone sees a campaign and goes, ah, gee, another campaign, great. But campaigns are needed to go into, to to bring disability into conversations that it's never been in before and bringing it in a way that's real, that we don't want to just be wearing your national uniform in the Paralympics. We want to be your lawyers and your doctors and your nurses and your co-workers and, you know, farmers or that. And and that's what that campaign's all about. Kurt, I, sh- I should also mention to our listeners that you've been involved in, you know, campaigning on these issues for a really long time. And recently I watched the, the show that you did for SBS on Australian perceptions of disability and I recommend it to all our listeners. It was absolutely fantastic. So congratulations on that. It's a bit intense. <laughs> it was a bit <laughs> intense. There, was, there were tears in our house. Kurt, I can't leave you without asking you what I think is a question that's been eating away at me for, for some time since I read your book, actually. And and that is that in your book, you talk about the fact that you had a pair of lucky undies. <laughs> <laughs> now, you say in the book that you, you wore them for all of your races. I think maybe you wore them in the Sydney to Hobart as well and that the elastic was gone by the end and that they were up around your, your chest but you couldn't shake the superstition. I, I appreciate and respect this and what I want to know is where are those lucky undies and are they, are they going to one day make their way into the Australian uh, Sport Hall of Fame? Look, uh, they, they are put under lock and key. There's too much power in those undies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I did... Uh... I, I actually even lent them to a mate. So I grew up just outside of Bathurst. And Mark Renshaw is uh, he's a, a, a cyclist that was the lead-out man for Mark Cavendish. And I joined him for a, a couple of weeks in the Tour de France about 10 years ago. And I'd told stories about my lucky undies. And he came out and they'd had a rough race and he mentioned the undies. And I gave them to him. 
So he took them into the bus. He put them on the rear vision mirror. They won the next two races. Oh. I took them back because I had to leave. No more wins. <laughs> so these these undies, oh. they have to be under lock and key because I don't think that the, uh, the power of the jocks uh, should not be unleashed into the Australian public anymore. So I can't talk about it. I can't confirm or deny anything other than what I've just said, but uh, they're, they're, they're in a safe space. I'm glad to hear it. And as I said, I do think they should make their way into the Australian Sports Hall of Fame one day. Maybe maybe when you're much older, you could gift them to the nation. Maybe a, maybe a house of horrors. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's evil spirits in them as well. Um, but they, they're definitely, they're definitely going to be kept. Oh, well, I'm glad they did the trick. Yeah. Kurt, thank you so much. I know you said it's been uh, many years where you've been waiting for the invitation to come on our <laughs> show. You weren't as excited as we were to have you on. We've been so um, pleased to speak to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.